Fishing like a local isn't just about catching fish. It's about connecting with the environment and the people who call it home. It's about hearing the stories and traditions that have been passed down for generations and sharing unforgettable moments with the people you meet along the way. Fishing like a local is having an experience that stays with you forever. And with Fishing Booker, you can experience it too, no matter where you are. Discover your next adventure on Fishing Booker. Welcome back to the podcast, episode 144. We got a pretty special guest. Um, I won't, well, you guys already know who it is because you guys have seen the thing, but this is your boy, East Coast Trev, and this is Steve. Just Steve. What up, buddy? No, oh, same. Just, just trying to get used to this computer thing again. You yeah, know, it's, right? it's, like we were talking about earlier, I mean, it's been a month and a half since we've done the virtual podcast everything's been in person over the table around the campfire for the last six or seven episodes so it's it's kind of weird it is weird i think the only one that we've done was the last podcast with uh actually the one before that 142 which is bojangles was the only one that we bojangles baits right but i think we, it's the only we one that we had that done before we went up <laughs> oh that's true so yeah. that been the last one right okay so yeah. but that was the last one that had been done <laughs> I, it's, it's just nuts but it's it's always nice you know a change of pace turkey season is kind of winding down the spring is finally here the summer is feels like summer weather i mean hunting the past week was 90 something degrees <laughs> i mean it's yeah nuts. i don't envy that i mean the fish are finally starting to show up in places here in the ocean and i know i could only imagine what they're doing in the river by you I haven't had a chance to get there, but I plan to be there soon. There's nothing wrong with that, man. I know the muskie and the smallmouth and everything else are probably ready to be caught. Yeah, I'm ready to go out there and attempt. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> I mean, after having the podcast with Mr. Ike himself, it's kind of almost got me wanting to go largemouth fishing, to be honest with you. I don't know if that's far-fetched or... No, no, not at all. I mean, it, it was a very entertaining and inspiring show. I mean, just the guy's energy is world renowned. Right. So when he gets to talking, yeah. and he, you know, it's just, <laughs> you just fill it. It just feeds. I think so. he's the only guy that's ever broke dance on um, break dance, broke break. Yeah. Break dance on the, on the front. He was break dancing <laughs> yeah. on the deck. <laughs> on, the, on the front of a, of a bass boat. <laughs> I just. You know, just a great guy, man. Real humble, real good dude. The things he's doing for the community are next to none. You guys will all hear about him uh, as the podcast rolls on. But I know you guys don't want to hear much of us, so let's break into the sponsors. Let's get get down to the nitty-gritty. Um, what do you think? Go ahead and sweep up that house cleaning, son. All right, let's do it. Uh, Huntworth, huntworthgear.com. If you guys have not checked them out, um, their early season gear, we've put it to the test. It has withstand everything that we've thrown at it. Phenomenal, phenomenal gear. Guys, go and check it out, huntworthgear.com. Really looking forward to deer season and putting these things really to the test. Uh, Bowfishing Magazine, bowfishingmagazine.com. Mr. Nick Sampson over there uh, has got a really good thing going. It's got some real cool things coming out. If you guys are bow fishermen or interested in bow fishing, get on over to the magazine. It's a virtual online magazine. And, I mean, we do have an ad in there, so you might want to go and check that out. Pretty important. Uh, Nor'easter Game Calls, nor'eastergamecalls.com. Mr. Mock himself uh, was just down hunting. We got a lot of really cool things that we had talked about that are going to come forth. Um, we have the Jurassic series, which is the mammoth tooth ivory um, grunt tube. Just some really cool things. Um, going to update on some other calls that you guys will hear on coming forth. Um, and, you know, we might even take something down into the Sitka woods, but we'll leave leave that for a later date. Uh, we're also partnered with Latitude, Latitude.com. No, actually, it's Latitude, Latitude Outdoors. Outdoors.com. 
Um, they actually did just kind of put out the sneak peek to their new uh, platform. Phenomenal. Uh, really looking forward to using that this season. Oh, I can't wait. <laughs> Dude, insane. I mean, talk about evolutionize. I mean, they're really putting forth the, some serious effort into that. And uh, get our hands on that. We have a podcast coming up with them here towards the end of uh, June. So you guys want to tune into that and kind of check that out. Uh, for you guys that are into getting into saddle hunting, the Method 2 and the Classic 2, now's the time to purchase those things. Start practicing, getting ready, go through the summer. The more you practice, the better you'll be. Actually, funny story is I was at Tractor Supply today getting the that stuff. Uh, yep. I had to go back and get a, uh, another thing, a weed eater. And uh, I was pulling in and there was this young, young gal she had on the back window was a latitude outdoor sticker. And I was, mm-hmm. I almost want to say something, but I was kind of in a rush. She was kind of in a rush. I didn't, I wanted to kind of see, maybe it was her husband. She didn't look like she was one that hey, would be in a saddle. She was wearing flip flops. So I don't know. I hey, mean, dude, if I could hunt in Crocs, I would. <laughs> I mean, I try and hunt Crocs, but being up in a saddle in Crocs is never a good idea. I've <laughs> I, tried I'd it. have to carry them up with me. It's slippery and it hurts your feet like platform because you're on that. Yeah, like, no that support. Degree. No, right, so, no. So Crocs on a platform no. and a saddle, just toss that one out the window. Even Crocs with socks, it definitely didn't help out ooh, much. But uh, <laughs> so, and last but not least, Zeus Broadheads, New Air Archery, the home of the B-16, home of the Zeus, the Aries, uh, Steady Form. You guys all know it. Go and check those guys out. And there's a new broadhead about to be on the market. You guys definitely going to want to check this thing out. I'm looking forward to using it this year and uh, breaking shoulders and smacking hearts. I mean, it's just the way that it's going to be. I can't wait. Yeah. <laughs> I want to say stuff so bad, but I'm not. I, for legal reasons, I cannot say. That's probably better. <laughs> it's badass. Yeah, it's definitely, definitely a really cool broadhead. Really looking forward to it. There was a little bit of tidbit that had been released about it uh, on Nick's page over on Facebook and stuff. So we'll see what comes from that. And I don't know. We'll see how many uh, shoulders we can put it through this season. I plan on putting all sorts of work on them. <laughs> That's what I'm saying. We'll, we'll have a little tidbit video once we get our hands on them kind of show you guys what's going on and you know with that if you guys haven't already get on over to youtube we have a ton of hunts steven's doing a phenomenal job putting those things together there's some really good hunts on there um by now uh actually in the real world it would release to friday uh this is going to release so a week ago um our uh our video with the little reap and us killing uh, a turkey together is actually up on our YouTube page. So we have a couple of cool hunts on there. Uh, go and hit the like, subscribe, notification button over there. Go and check out our website, theoutdoordrive.com. Get on the newsletter. We're going to start pumping out some really cool stuff throughout this summer, kind of keeping you in the loop with what's going on. New merchandise, you name it. We're going to take this thing to the whole new level. So just go and check out our other social media platforms if you guys would. We'd really appreciate it. Well done. <laughs> yeah. Well, hey, whatever. <laughs> uh, well, should we? Yeah, I think you ought to. Yeah. Yep. Yeah. Let's go see our boy, Mike Salter. <laughs> All right. Let's bring him on. Bringing you the news for the cruise is our good buddy, Mike Salter. Take it away, Mike. Hey everyone, let's start this one off in Maine where a group of hunters has filed a lawsuit to lift the state's ban on Sunday hunting. The group argues that the ban violates Maine's new right to food, added by referendum last November to the state's constitution. This would be great for hunters, but there is heavy opposition to lifting the ban by Maine woodland owners, which is the largest group of private landowners in the state. The opposition is not against hunting. Uh, They actually encourage hunting and allow hunting on their lands, Uh, but landowners should be able to enjoy their property uh, unbothered, as has been the case on Sundays up until now. Uh, Some hunters are also skeptical, worrying that lifting of the Sunday hunting ban will result in a lot more properties being posted to hunting. A February report showed that 62% of landowners in the north and east regions, 61% in the central region, and 81% in the south region of Maine oppose Sunday hunting. So we will have to see how the legal process plays out for this one, but something to definitely keep an eye on. Uh, 
now to Wyoming and the corner crossing case, which I reported on several weeks ago. The four hunters in the corner crossing case were found not guilty of criminal trespassing. However, a civil lawsuit has been filed by the landowner uh, on the hunters, uh, which is ongoing. And not only that, the hunters have now been served summons uh, to reappear in the same court uh, in June on similar charges related to corner uh, crossing the same corner in 2020. So even with a positive uh, outcome of the first trial uh, it, and the not guilty verdict, the corner crossing issue is far from over. Now to Vermont, where two hearings were held last week to solicit input on uh, deer and the Fish and Wildlife Department's 2022 antlerless harvest and use season recommendations. Uh, deer populations in five management units, primarily in the Champlain Valley, uh, remain above objectives and increased antlerless harvests are recommended in these units. The remainder of the state will see antlerless tags remain the same or slightly decrease. Youth and novice season recommendations, including allowing hunters to harvest one either sex deer uh, and to remove any antler point restrictions for this season. Now for some season changes across the country. First in Utah, where the Wildlife Board has approved recommendations, including reducing the number of general season deer hunting permits by 950 permits. Decreases will affect 13 of the 29 deer hunting units in the state. Other changes include reducing the limited deer entry tags by 50 tags, reducing the antlerless deer tags by 300, reducing the antlerless elk tags by 337, increasing the limited entry bull elk tags by 80, increasing uh, buck pronghorn, ta pronghorn tags by 76, decreasing doe pronghorn tags by 197, decreasing bull moose by two tags, increasing antlerless moose by three tags, uh, decreasing Rocky Mountain bighorn sheep tags by 10, and the ewe hunt is cut in half to only five tags, uh, and decreasing mountain goat uh, tags by 16. There will also be a new antlerless deer hunt and five new antlerless elk hunts and a new doe pronghorn hunt. Now to Arizona and changes to the over-the-counter non-permit tag opportunities for archers. Harvest limits have been set by unit and species. All over-the-counter uh, archery deer hunters will be required to report their harvest within 48 hours. When the limit for a particular unit is reached, the unit will be closed at sundown on the Wednesday following uh, the deer harvest limit being uh, reached. Now to Wyoming, where the Game and Fish has cut 11,000 mule deer and pronghorn hunting licenses due to drought and disease. The pronghorn licenses will be cut by 8,000 and mule deer by 3,300. Mule deer and pronghorn were specifically targeted uh, by the cuts due to their reliance on shrub growth and the effects of the lack of soil moisture limiting shrub growth across the state. Uh, they do hope this is a temporary reduction in licenses for this year. Lastly, to PA, where the Game Commission recently built their first shotgun patterning range, which is now open for use. The range is located on State Game Lands 205 in Lehigh County off of Warden Road. The new range is ADA compliant and consists of two shooting stations, uh, with shot collection structures designed to secure paper targets at both 25 and 35 yards. This is the first completed range, but there are plans to build four additional ranges throughout the state over the next year. So more information on all the shooting ranges uh, can be found on the Game Commission's website. So as always, if you have any additional news to send to me, it would be greatly appreciated. You can reach out to me, Mike Salter, on Facebook or bearded underscore bowhunter21 on Instagram. And with that, enjoy the rest of your ride. You guys know what to do. Send over your news to Mr. Mike Salter and his phenomenal job of what he does for us every single week here on the Outdoor Drive podcast. We can't thank him enough. We put him through enough hell every single week. <laughs> I was just sitting here thinking, I was like, man, he is probably so wound up dealing with us right now. Do I, do I get you the news? Do you not need the news? What are you guys doing? I have no clue. It's like... Did, Mike, thanks for being uh, Gumby for us, just flexing and stretching and, and following along. He makes it possible every single week. Thank you, Michael. It's been wild. Speaking of Michael, they don't want to hear us talk no more. Let's no. get Mr. Mr. Mike Iconelli on the phone. Let's do it, brother. All right, we're back on the phone with Ike himself, Mr. Mike Iconelli. How are you, brother? How you doing tonight, guys? Doing well, doing well. <laughs> Thanks for joining us, man. I know you have a busy schedule and you got a ton of stuff going on, so I know that it it takes away a little bit from that stuff. It's no problem. It's actually a good time. We're between tournaments. Uh, I've had a week here, and uh, 
got a few media stuff I'm doing later in the week, but I got a chance to come to Baton Rouge. One of my daughters lives here. She just graduated from LSU. So getting a chance to spend a couple days with her. Go Tigers. That's right. Uh, I got an aunt that lives in there. It's super nice. We, I love it here. Honestly, I feel like um, I'm from New Jersey. It's as far away from Louisiana as you can get, like you, literally. You're flip flopped. Yeah. <laughs> I honestly feel like Louisiana is sort of a second home for me. Uh, you know, I got to start my, my tournament career started here. And of course I won the classic here in 2003. So it's a special state for me. That's awesome, man. Well, I don't want to dive too crazy into it. So why don't we, uh, we'll start this bass cat. We'll get this thing underway. What do you think? Let's do it. All right. Why don't you tell everybody who you are, where you're from and a little bit about what you do, Mike. Okay. Um, my name is Mike Iconelli. I'm from Pittsgrove, New Jersey. Uh, I am a professional angler. Uh, I've been doing it for almost 30 years. That's right. I'm an old guy. I've been doing it for almost 30 years. Uh, I honestly love it. You know, at, at this stage of my life, the stage of my career, it's more than just bass tournament fishing. It's really developed into an entire business life uh mecca for me uh, you know i get to do multi-species i get to do tv shows i get to design baits and products and i get to get new people fishing and that's that's sort of always been the hidden goal for me is how do you grow the sport how do you get more people to watch to pay attention how do you get more people to participate so man i've been real fortunate that i've had an opportunity to be a part of that and to try to help help grow the sport that's awesome man i i know throughout your whole entire career it's kind of been like that you've definitely gotten you know the the limelight on you as far as you were definitely way different than everybody else kind of you were stuck in you as i would say the crazy italian from new jersey that was stuck in the the christian's world you know <laughs> when, when you had fished with those guys it, it was it was uh interesting time you know when i when i came up through the ranks and you know i i really I came up through the grassroots level. I started fishing locally and regionally as a co-angler, as an amateur, and then as a semi-pro and a pro. So, you know, I really kind of came up through the grassroots, but I can tell you that in the mid to early nineties, the world of professional bass fishing was a lot different. And uh, it was, it was pretty, pretty one sided as far as the participants. And, you know, there was definitely some trials, some tribulations that happened to, to get to the pro level, but I'm glad I wouldn't, I wouldn't, you know, I look back on some of the hard things that I went through, but I wouldn't change any of it. Uh, you know, you look at the sport today, I'm really proud to say the sport today, 2022, it's, um, a sport that anyone can participate in, uh, geographically, uh, age-wise, race, gender, different parts of the world even it's a sport that you can pursue and have a great career a great living in uh i I think it's one of the magic things about professional fishing you know you don't have to be six five and 200 pounds like you do in basketball you don't (laughs) have to be uh you know speed skater like to be a professional hockey i mean it's really uh it's about you against the fish and that breaks down a lot of barriers. And uh, I'm, I'm proud that today we're at a sport where it's really diversified and uh, it's open to anyone. And so where did it all kind of start for you? Because you kind of grew up not really bass fishing. Um, where did it start for you? And what was that kind of that one moment that like you're like, I want to be a professional angler? You know, there, were, there was a couple. I would say, you know, growing up uh, in Philadelphia and then later New Jersey, no one hardly fished. Um, so, but my family got me involved in it, and that started a love for fishing. And, you know, at that early age, it was just, man, I just wanted stuff pulling back. I didn't care what it was. Bluegill, trout, catfish, didn't matter. But I caught a bass on a topwater lure when I was about 11 years old. And that really did what, that was the first big thing that changed the course of my life because it was a fish on an artificial. It was a fight I've never experienced. It was so visual. And that sort of hooked me on bass fishing uh, at an early age. And then the second big one, you know, flash forward about uh, 10 years uh, when I was in college and I started competing at the very basic level as an amateur. And my sophomore year in college, I won a national amateur event. And, you know, I was 20, 21 years old. And first place at the time was a fully rigged ranger boat and motor valued at like 30 grand. 
I didn't know what to do with myself. I, th- I thought, you know, I, I thought it couldn't get any better than that. But with that boat, with that win, it gave me the confidence to try to do it professionally. It also gave me the means to try to do it professionally because before that I was a bank fisherman. I was a John boat fisherman. So, uh, you know, a couple, couple things like that happened in my life and pretty key to, you know, helping me get to where I'm at today. I think with that story, the one that you had just kind of told the, the last one was like what, the best was when your uncle, he went and he got the trailer, the trailer hitch put on the, the van. Cause he had that yeah. much faith in you winning that tournament. It's crazy. Yeah. We had no idea. We, we've never towed a boat in our life. And, uh, I traveled down there with my uncle and it was, yeah, it was crazy. You know, he went and went to a U-Haul or a Pep Boys or whatever, got a hitch installed. I mean, just bizarre. Uh, and I had no idea, you know, I, I won that boat and I got back with it. I slept in it the first night. I'm not kidding. I was so excited. I slept in the boat, uh, but I, I knew nothing about fishing out of a big boat. And I had to learn all that myself. I had really no mentors at that point. And, you know, it was good and it was bad. It was bad because I made a lot of mistakes, um, did a lot of things wrong, but it's also good because when you're making those mistakes and you're making them on your own, you, you learn a lot. Uh, uh, and you know, I look back on those years and, you know, 93, 94, 95, man, very important, important years for me as a, as a professional angler. Was it, was there times that you had gone through the tournament series where you kind of thought that they were kind of like against you and like the way that you had fished or the way that you had acted? Oh yeah. Yeah. No, there were times that I felt like that. And there were times that were like that, Right. <laughs> you know, uh, yeah, I mean, there was definitely a period there early on where at the national level, they did not want to change it. They didn't want a young Yankee, uh, and I'll just say it, that's what right. I was called, a Yankee, a uh, northerner in the sport, you know. Um, there was one already in, his name was Kevin Van Dam, and, you know, Kevin's early career, if you look back on the history of his career as well, he wasn't liked either. Uh, they were, you know, they were trying to get rid of Kevin too. Uh but, you know, when you say the course and you keep doing what you do and you love what you do and you're passionate about it, people come around and, you know, change, uh, you know, being different is not easy in the beginning, no matter what that is in life. But if it's really you and it's really what you love and you stay the course, people come around. And so, you know, as hard as that time was, it was also one of the biggest things that I did right when I look back at my career, it was the key to my sponsorships. It was the key to my fan base. It was the key to my branding. Um, I wouldn't, I wouldn't want to take any of that away. Uh, and, and it was, it was worth going through some, some of those rough times, you know? Mm-hmm. Absolutely. Now you think that being fully engulfed in it, like when you had started and worked with like Dick sporting goods, you think that that had actually like played a huge part in you moving forward and doing this as a full-time career? Oh, yeah. You know, national sponsorship and sponsorship in general is a big part of a professional tournament angler's career. It's hard uh, then and it's hard now to make a living in this sport without some backing. Uh, and, you know, so for me to have success early as a as a amateur, as a semi pro, and then, you know, I, I won my second event I ever fished as a pro. That was stuff that men when it happened, it gave me national visibility, which was able to attract those sponsors. And so, you know, for me, being different, being unique, uh, you know, uh, just being uh, unorthodox, it was hard, but it was also great because a lot of these companies wanted to enter the sport and they wanted someone to help them promote and market their brands that was different, that fit a different mold. And uh, so I, I really, you know, it was a good thing. And I, I turned a lot of the negatives into a positive and for sure through sponsorships, you know, it was, uh, it was important in, in that stage of my career. And it is to this day, uh, you know, it's, it's hard because when an average person, you know, you, you hear, Oh, guy fishes professionally for a living tournament fishes. They, they think it's just fishing but it's so much more than fishing. It's honestly about half of it's fishing and the other half is all this other stuff. And so, you know, I'm, I'm really proud and lucky and blessed that I've had an opportunity to do uh, all this other stuff over the years, the other half of the sport. 
And what, so, so with the other half, I mean, it's, it, and it, it takes over a lot of time. It's not just the fishing aspect of it. People don't understand that. Like there's a lot of endorsements. There's a lot of other things that you have to do to make it full circle, to make it so that you can do it for a living. It, it is a lot. I mean, you gotta, you, you have to live and breathe it and you have to, you have to engage in it every day. Uh, you know, and I'm not, I'm not just saying that. So, you, you know, it's, it's not a normal nine to five. You have to be willing to work every day at it uh, at some capacity, whether it's the business side or the fishing side. There are no off days. You got to think about it all the time. Today's a great example. You know, today, um, today was technically an off day for me. And I'm with my daughter, who I don't get to see a lot anymore. But I had a product development call with Pure Fishing earlier today that lasted over an hour. I'm doing a podcast right now. You know, it's, it's those kind of things that you have to do it because it's, it's your job. And, and, you know, the thing about it though, and I don't, I don't want to ever complain about it because it is really something I love and I love to fish. I love to talk fishing. I love to talk shop. I love, I love it. I've loved it since I was a kid. So I don't ever want to sound like I'm complaining, but it is a lot of work for sure. So with like, with that, like, how did you find the balance between family work and pleasure? Yeah, that that's always been, you know, if I look back at my career, that was always the toughest part of the of the sport for me of my career was finding the balance. And, you know, it's a lot of time away from home and, you know, you miss things and I, I miss time with my with my family and my kids. And, you know, that stuff you 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 can never get back, you know, and it's a sacrifice. Uh, but it's like anything in life. If you want something, you you have to make some sacrifices and you have to figure out ways to make it work you know in today's age with uh social media and facetime and stuff like that the digital age it's become a lot easier um but it's never it's never easy i can tell you when i decide to officially retire when i actually officially hang my head up uh from from uh, competition um you know it'll it'll be sort of a sigh of relief and it'll be a nice nice change and it'll be sort of something that I've looked forward to for a long time, getting back to being somewhat of a normal guy. You know, you kind of got a taste of that in 2021 when you had taken the time off to kind of focus on yourself and focus on family and life. I could only imagine it was probably hard to try and go back to doing the other, the elite in the kayak fishing tournament and stuff like that when it was time. Yeah, it was tough. You know, we took a little break, uh, professional fishing like other sports when covid hit the height of covid 2020 um everything was shut down uh, so i sort of you know took a break by default but the following year last year 2021 i really did take a little bit of a break and it, it was it was very refreshing it was a good reset for me um and you know it was de- definitely something that as i look forward when i eventually do retire i know i'm gonna i'm gonna love aspects of retirement you know and here's the thing i say retirement that's really probably not the right word because i'll step away from competitive fishing but i certainly won't be retired we'll still be in the t- doing the tv stuff the podcasting the social media the content the ike foundation getting kids involved in fishing all that's still going to happen so it's it's far from retirement uh but I, I i look forward to a day where i stop competing and i'm home you know six seven months out of the year instead of on the road six seven months out of the year you know well you 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 mentioned the Ike foundation. Why don't you go into that and tell a little bit about what exactly that is because between professional fishing and there's a lot of other things that go on in, in your world that aren't just fishing. Well, they're not, you know, competitive fishing. Yeah. Yeah. There is a lot, you know, we, and we've been lucky that we've been able to start other businesses, you know, so, uh, Bash University, uh, you know, Ike live, uh, some of the TV shows we've, we've been really lucky to have those, aspects of our business but there's this other one that's really special for us and it's a foundation that we started about seven or eight years ago and it's called the ike foundation and you know the the mission's real simple um you know becky and i started it and we said you know when you get to a stage in your career in your business you have to give back and it's time to give back and we were at that stage and we looked at a lot of things and we said what can we do to give back and make a difference and getting non-traditional kids fishing was a no-brainer because you know when i looked in the mirror it was sort of me and it was some of my friends growing up that were 
city kids, suburb kids that from an area that of the country where they would never have gotten involved in fishing if it wasn't for a family member. And that's what we decided to do. So, you know, at the Ike Foundation, bottom line, we try to get new kids fishing. And, and a lot of times those new kids are city kids, kids in urban areas, kids in parts of the country where fishing's not the thing. And we, we try to get them fishing and it's uh, it's a lot of work. It's one of the toughest things we've ever done. One of the toughest businesses we've ever started, but it's the most rewarding. And, you know, when the year ends and you look back and you say, Hey, we, we, we got some kids fishing or we introduced this thing called fishing to some kids you feel good about it and we've made a little difference even if it's just a little uh and it's a big big mission for us and we we really work hard at it and um we just we just want we want kids to stay involved in the outdoors we're not trying to breed professional anglers although it'd be great if some of those kids fish professionally uh but we want to we want to get those kids to enjoy the outdoors to like fishing to have fun to see the sport as exciting and fun. Um, and, and we try to do that every day. We, we try to reach kids and, and get them fishing. Especially with the, some of the kids and working with some of those kids, I could only imagine, you know, the memories that are made or the things that they kind of like take over you because always when working with kids, there's always like that one-off moment. You're like, this is why I do it. Cause there is a frustration oh, yeah. aspect of it, but like, there's always that one if moment, like what, what was that one if moment for you? with working with the kids? Oh man, there's been so many. Uh, I literally, I mean, I think it's every, every time we um, have an event or help with an event or, you know, we have a scholarship program, we award scholarship, like all of those. I think there's one of those moments every time, you know, probably one of the, the, the best ones I remember is our first, it was our first or second year. So seven or eight years ago, we held an event in Central Park in New York City. I mean, New York, New York. Uh, and we had thousands of kids show up over a three-day weekend to just cast. This wasn't even fishing. This was a casting event. Uh, and we had thousands of kids that cast, had never cast before. And, you know, when you see that, you see their 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 look of achievement on casting a lure into a a target or into a hoop. Um, it's something that, you know, is amazing. And you see the smiles and, and, you know, maybe a few of those thousand kids, then the next few weekends go out and actually fish, go to central park and catch a bluegill or catch a carp or catch a catfish or a bass. And that, that gets them hooked. Uh, and literally, I mean, uh, that gets them hooked into a sport. It's how it happened with me. It's how it happened with a lot, a lot of non-traditional kids uh, it's that first experience. So there's those moments happen every time we have an event or every time we help with an event, those moments happen. And that's, that's one thing. I mean, a lot of us seem to take for granted as we move on with our careers in the outdoor world is that there is other people out there that don't even know that there's an outlet to be able to do these things. So having a foundation like that is a very powerful thing. Yeah, it's, it's been great. And that's one of the, uh, businesses that will continue for me and continue for Becky literally until we're being wheeled around in wheelchairs and walkers. Um, you know, that that's one that I'll never retire from. It's a lifelong mission. So, uh, but it's very rewarding and, uh, and I love it. I'm, I'm kind of intrigued by the Bass University thing. What, what exactly is that? I've never really, I've never researched on it or heard about it or. Yeah. The Bass University is, we call it our education arm, but, um, you know, basically we love to teach. And so, um, me and my good friend, Pete Glusick, who's another professional angler from New Jersey, we, we basically were guys that were on the speaking tour as the professionals. Right. And this has gone back to the late mid to late nineties or all the way through the early two thousands. We literally, I remember most years I would speak at 20 to 40 events a year. That's sports shows and seminars and retail outlets and everything. And I was a maniac and so was he. And because we loved to teach. So, you know, uh, about 10 years ago, we decided we wanted to start up this teaching tour. Uh, and and that's a, that was the original plan was to create a tour 
that would eventually be, you know, 20, 24, 26, 30, 30 cities in a year. And we would instruct people in in fishing and in profession in, in bass fishing. We'd hire the best professional anglers out there to come and speak at these seminars and talk about what their thing was, you know, and that's how it started. And it's, it was great. And, and you know, hiring Van Dam to talk about jerk baits, ha- hiring Skeet to talk about swim baits, hiring Aaron Martins to talk about drop shotting. I mean, we had those kind of speakers. We have those kind of speakers. Um, but what happened is interesting as times changed and as the digital age really hit us, we realized that there were a lot of people that wanted this information, but couldn't get to a city. They couldn't get to Chicago. They couldn't get to Orlando or Philly or Dallas. They lived in the Midwest or they lived out West or they lived somewhere where they couldn't attend an event. And, you know, we really came up with this plan to how do we reach people, right? How do we get to people? And it's through what we're doing right now. And, you know, through, through digital means, through a subscription-based service, we're able to teach people at their fingertips whenever they want it. Right. So they don't have to be in an event. If they, they want to learn on the weekends on their boat with their iPad, they can, if they want to learn on their phone or home on their computer, if they want to pause a seminar halfway through and go to bed and wake up the next morning. And so we really created a platform where people can learn new techniques, uh, new patterns, new lures, learn from the best anglers in the world. And, and that's, we really sort of, that's our thing, right? Because you can get a lot of free information, right? There's a lot of information on YouTube out there, but, we hire the guys that are doing it. These are vetted. These are vetted anglers, right? These are anglers that have wins and classics and AOYs. And, you know, these are the pros. These are the professional athletes of the sport that we're hiring. And uh, it's been great. Just like the Ike Foundation, it's rewarding as well to be able to teach, instruct, to be able to pass on knowledge to people and, you know, help them become better anglers. And, you should do that. That's another thing we should all do, right? We, sh- we should all try to get kids involved and, and we should all, we should all pass on the sport. And that means, you know, teaching people, you know, the next generation is definitely the most important and yeah. any of the outdoor things. And I think a lot of people, I mean, we all try and do our best, right. But there's only so much that we can do, right. I mean, if they're not yeah. going to take it, then you can't take it, you know, and yeah. it's just the way that it goes. Um, I do have one question for you. So you had, you had left the bass, the bass and had gone to MLF. Um, yes. do you feel that that grass was greener when you had gone over there or was there, there was a big change in it for you? Big change, big change. And that was a, you, you know, you, we're going, we're all going to learn more about it as time goes on. You know, it's one of those moments in time, one of those moments in the history of a sport that, when it's happening and it's still very fresh, you, you can't really grasp why it happened or, 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 you know, why it all happened like that, you know, 10, 15, 20, 30 years from now, you're going to look back and be like, Oh shit, I get it. I totally get why this happened. Uh, and you know, it was, it was that way for me. Um, you know, MLF has been around for a long time. You know, we've had those uh, cup events for a long time, but they were always in addition to the other tours. And, You know, uh, around the time when I I would say, you know, a year or two before MLF started its own tour, the anglers were getting frustrated. The anglers were getting, um, you know, a little, there was a little negativity in the sport at BASS, Bass Angler Sports Society, because the anglers' needs and wants were sort of being put down on, on, on the ladder, you know, and that's not good for any sport, right? The athletes, the participants should be high up on the ladder, right? Because they're the reason the sport exists. And, you know, I think that negativity built and built and built to a point at where the majority of the anglers, you got to remember 80 of the hundred guys left, right? This isn't five dudes. This is 80 of the hundred left. And it was really an outcry to say, Hey man, you know, we need to be in control of our own destiny here. We need to be in control of our own fate. We need to have some say in, in our professional career. 
and, and that's really what it was. Um, and so, you, you know, leaving to, to go try that, I have no regret about it. I think it was necessary. I think you're going to see that again in 20, 30 years. And they're going to look back and say, it's very necessary. It had happened in the sport. Uh, but, you know, the reality of it is, is that although those intentions were great and the vision and, and thought of that was great, it never really materialized over there either. And, you know, what I realized a few years in to MLF after leaving Bass is that things were as bad <laughs> or, or, or maybe even a little, little worse over there with the anglers not having a say or control. So, right. So it was like you left something to go to something that ended up being the same. Uh, so it was part of that. And part of me, uh, I, I think it was me visualizing how I wanted to spend the last few chapters of my career. Mm-hmm. You know, would it would it be there in this new league with different format rules, and or would it be back where I started? And you know, this wasn't an easy decision, and and you know, it was a well thought out decision. But at the end of the day, it felt more right to go back to bass and and bass has changed a lot for the better uh you know after all that happened and uh, it just feels feels more natural for me it feels like more of a home environment and so you know whether i have two or three or ten years left i don't know but i i really feel like being back at bass is where i want to spend the last uh last part of my career Sometimes you need that though. It kind of, they kind of need a kick in the ass because they, you know, to realize what they have to do for you to keep you happy, you know, like every other sport has checks and balances and maybe bass fishing didn't at that time, but now it does because of that. Yep. It's happened in every other sport. It's happened in baseball and football and hockey and uh, you know, and it's going to continue to happen and Mm -hmm. and it's good uh, because you're right. It, It keeps people in checks and balances. And at the end of the day, you know, the professional anglers are athletes and that they are the reason why the sport exists and they are the reason the fans watch and the sponsors come in. So, you know, not putting the anglers at the bottom is a very, very important thing. And I guess it, probably for you, it was a little tough being at MLF because those fans weren't there at check-in. They weren't there. I mean, at weigh-in, they weren't, you know, you were so used yeah. to throughout your entire career being there to kind of, be in front of those people and, and hype those people up. I mean, that's who you are. I mean, you're the only yeah. dude that I know that screams on the front of the boat or break dances on the front of the boat. I mean, that's, that's what it is, man. That's what it is yeah. for you. So having that an MLF is probably a little bit different when going in the way. in. yeah, that was a big missing component for me over there. And another big reason I went back to bass is it, are the fans and that personal interaction for me uh, keeps me going. It's, it's, you know, one of the reasons I love, the competition i love the sport and you know in particular like the bad days especially not you know the good days yes it's automatic right but the bad days you know i've had a pretty shitty to be to be put it mildly i've had a pretty shitty year this year and the bad days coming off the water you know not having those fans there made it even even worse it was really really shitty this year i have a bad day i come off the water i go way in my one one or two measly fish and I get off the stage and there's a lot of people that want to talk and a lot of people that go out of their way to come visit with me. And that's important. And I feel that positive energy. It picks me back up. It keeps me in a good place. So yes, I need the fans. I'm glad I'm back at, at a circuit that has a, has a big fan base and big fan attendance. Mm -hmm. So I I want to shift gears just a little bit. So what do you, when you're getting ready for a tournament and you're going into a tournament, obviously pre-fishing, but like what's going through your mind and how are you, you moving forward? Like what are your steps to getting in to try and win that tournament? Yeah. You know, the funny thing is it, it hasn't changed a lot, you know, from, from when, from how I did it, even as a club fisherman, uh, before all this to now, the the process and the mindset hasn't changed a whole lot, to be honest with you, you know, and, and you know, you, you have a practice period, whether it's five hours or three days, you know, it usually ends up being a couple days and you have that practice period to try to dissect a body of water 
to find the winning fish, right? That formula is always the same. And the process that I use is the same. I do a little bit of research in the beginning. I try to wrap my hands around seasonal pattern of where I think the fish are. And then at the end of the day, I just let the fish try to tell me where they're at and what they're doing. And I try to listen to the fish. Um, I've always been a big believer in finding concentrations of fish, not necessarily fishing for five big bites. And I, I've found that, you know, if you can find concentrations of fish, you know, a, a, a cove or a creek arm where a lot of fish are living and you catch enough, you'll have the fish to win. And, and that's usually the case. Not always the case, but it's usually the case. So that strategy, that mindset is what I've always used. And that's what I'll continue to use to, to the end, you know, and uh, I'm confident, you know, like I said, I haven't been fishing great so far this year, but I'm going to stay the course. It's been a good strategy for me in my career. I've got uh, 14 major wins uh, in those years that I've fished. And um, I think I have a few more left in me. And, and for sure, I want to win another blue trophy. I want to win another elite event before I'd be satisfied in leaving, uh, leaving professional fishing. You think you can do it again? Will they, will they ever go back to the Delaware River again for you? No, they're never going to come back to the Delaware, but that's okay. That's okay. I, I, uh, that's they know the, better? Yeah. No, that's one of those ones where, you, you know, to be honest, I wouldn't want them to come back because I don't want to ever change that or, or try to trump that. That's a moment in my career, in my life, that sits in a very special place in my mind and my memory. I don't ever want to mess with that. And, I, and so selfishly, I almost hope they don't come back. Right. Uh, you know, you can win on any given event. Any of those guys can win, right? So the 90 or 100 anglers have a chance to win. It's you against the fish. You know, things have to line out. And I don't care if you're religious or philosophical or what your background is. But at the end of the day, when you're meant to win and you're supposed to win, you win. It's like getting struck by lightning. You can't run from it. It happens. And uh, it will happen again for me. I'm, I'm, Here's the thing, you know, I'm not fishing great this year um, down on the list in the standings, but I promise you none of those other guys work as hard as me. I promise you I will outwork every single one of them. I don't always catch them and I don't always place, but I make it a point that after every event and every practice that I can close my eyes and I can look back at the event and say, I worked as hard as I could. And that's been a strong point for me in my career. And, and it, it will continue to be a strong point for me. That's awesome, man. Well, why don't we break into the questions? We, we started a new segment with you. It's questions with Ike. <laughs> Not that it's <laughs> anything it's awesome. crazy. <laughs> I like it. One episode special. Yeah, one now episode what, special. What Ike are we talking about? Is it is it Eisenhower? Is it Ike Turner? <laughs> is it the, is it the uh, Ike, a Japanese emoji character? What Ike are we talking well, about? That all depends which way you want to take this in your yeah, exactly. answer. Oh, okay. I was going to say It could be all of them. <laughs> okay. I like that. All right. All right. We'll start off with Jason Fisher's question. He said, how does he keep his excitement up to the level he is known for, ever, for whenever he hooks a fish? <laughs> Wow. Okay. Uh, you know, for me, I mean, it's honestly, I think, uh, I think everyone feels that when they hook a fish, right? That's fishing is all about that moment of tricking a fish and biting something artificial. You set the hook and it's that moment in time. You're almost like holding your breath until the fish you land it. Right. So I think everyone feels like that for me. Uh, I've, I've, I've made a, a lifetime out of letting that out, that excitement out when you land it or the energy of the negative energy out when you lose it. And uh, it feels natural for me. I hope I never lose that. You know, I've, I've been criticized in the last maybe four or five years of, of being less vocal. And, uh, you know, I'm getting older. I'm 50 this year. So I maybe have a little less energy, but I promise you, I feel like that every time I, I, I land one and hook one. So I hope that never goes away. I think that's part of being uh, from the Northeast too. That, that has something to do with it. I, I really, truly honest, cause I'm the same way, just off the wall, the off the energy. charts. Oh, people I'll can't handle us. <laughs> yeah, people yeah. can't handle I, us, Mike. I'd agree. I'd agree with that. <laughs> uh, Steve Mardick's question is uh, on a lunch break and you have just enough time to throw a handful of casts in some random hole. What would be your go-to lure to toss? Oh man, that one's an easy one. Um, talk about revolutionary baits, baits that revolutionized 
how we fish. The soft stick bait, aka Senko, aka General, aka Yumdinger, whatever you want to call yes, it. The soft, the soft stick bait has changed fishing for everyone, for me especially. And you know that lure, I can rig it so many ways, uh, from wacky to Texas to jighead, you know, to 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 Carolina. I mean, there's so many ways. Weightless. Um, it's my one lure that if, if I, if I only had one, it would be that one. If I only had 30 minutes, five minutes to fish at a pond, it would be that one. And I'm confident I can get bit on it year round, you know, uh, winter, summer, spring, fall, clear, stained, dirty, you know, different depths, you know, it's, it's a versatile lure and, uh, it has to be a soft stick bait 100%. So, and I would 100% agree with you when that had come out, when Gary Yamamoto came out with it, it was over. I mean, it literally, evolutionized putting fish in the boat and not putting fish. I mean, anybody can fish with one, whether or not you knew how to bass fish or not. Yeah. Um, Josh Curtis says late tournament strategies. When most of the lakes have been overfished, how do you find that one big bite to put you in the higher standings condition conditions will be spawn post spawn in a hot sunny day. Yep. It's a great question. And, and we're all faced with that, whether you fun fish or you're a tournament fisherman, uh, you know, you get in a situation a lot where you need a big bite. You, you know, you want a big bite. Right. And uh, for me, there's kind of, the, you know, there's there's two things that I think about when I need that big bite. And and this goes for uh, pretty much year round. Right. Not not even just the time period he's talking about. And the first part of that rule is uh, deeper or thicker, deeper or thicker. And that's a real general rule. And it's basically the biggest fish in a system live a little deeper than what everyone else is fishing, or they live thicker than what everybody else is fishing, right? So the deeper one's easy, right? If, if you know, you've been fishing in 10 and 12 off the side of a point, drop down to 15 to 20. If you've been fishing in 15 to 20, drop down to 20 to 30, right? Those bigger fish love deep water. So deeper uh, is a good solution to get a bigger fish. Thicker is another really good one. And this goes for places that aren't deep, right? If you've got fisheries that are shallow, in my experience, some of the biggest fish in a fishery and a, a system will live in the thickest available cover. So the heaviest vegetation match you could find, the furthest dark corner under a dock, the middle of that lay down pine tree, you know, where nobody's will dare to cast. That's where you're gonna get that big bite. So deeper or thicker. And then the second part of it, you've heard it, I've heard it since I was a kid, big bait big bait big bass and that's that's true and you've really seen a revolution in swim bait fishing in the last 10 years and um you know if i'm looking for a big one i want a big bait a big jig a big top water a 10 or 12 inch worm and for sure a big swim bait and uh you won't get a lot of bites when you're looking for a big one big fish do like to eat big forage and you know what we say in the saltwater world elephants eat peanuts no, just kidding. <laughs> <Jeez>. <laughs> Sorry, I had to go there. I just thought I'd break up That's the awesome. <laughs> Uh Josh does have one other question. He says, favorite New England fisheries and tips to catch more and bigger fish in them. Wow. Well, favorite New England fisheries, I mean, for me, uh, you know, I, I would – Lake Champlain is has been my favorite – uh, Northeast fishery forever. I uh, love, love Lake Champlain. I'd also, you know, I put Lake Winnipesaukee, Candlewood Lake in Connecticut, uh, up there right in that list, uh, phenomenal fisheries. I don't get to fish those as much as I like to anymore, but, uh, we're really lucky, you know, to have some great fisheries up here, but most of those lakes that I mentioned are special because they're a dynamic mix of largemouth and smallmouth. Mm -hmm. To me, that's what makes a tremendous fishery. You know, those take Champlain and Candlewood and Winnipesaukee. They're all the same. You can go catch 20 pounds of largemouth. You can go run a mile down the lake and go catch 20 pounds of smallmouth all in the same day. That doesn't happen a lot of places in the country. A lot of places in the world that does not happen. So uh, real lucky to, to, be, to, to live up here and to have access to some of those fisheries. Absolutely. I can't agree with you more. Uh, Chris J said, any tips to keep in the kids interested in fishing? Yes, man. A lot of tips. So let me, let me first start by saying, please, 
go to my YouTube. Uh, it's Mike Agnelli Fishing over on YouTube. Also, we got a great series on Bassmaster.com right now on exactly this topic. But lots of keys to get keep kids fishing. I'm going to give you the number one lesson, the number one rule. Make it fun. Make it fun, man. It's so easy for me especially. I'm a fish head. I'm a competitor. I It's hard to break out of tournament mode for me. But when you're taking a young kid fishing, you have to make it fun. And, you know, there's a lot of different ways to do that. You know, it could be a shorter trip. It could be bringing other stuff. It could be you know, the, the baits and equipment you're using. I'm a big advocate of light line and light rods, you know, little spinning rods, little ca- uh, spin cast rods, uh, make it visual. I'm a big advocate of getting kids involved in fishing to make it a lure or a float, right. Where they can visually see what's happening. So, you know, you got to make it fun. That's the bottom line. Look, if it's not fun, if they feel you know, pressure, or if they feel like it's, it's boring or slow, or, you know, they don't have the pay. If if any of that comes in, they'll probably never want to fish again. So you have to make the experience fun. Uh, Even if you don't catch any, really focus on making it fun for them. That's important. Absolutely. And keep them guys fishing for sure. Um, Chad James says, what, what are your favorite places to fish in South Jersey? Oh boy, Chad, you put me on the spot here. Uh, favorite places <laughs> in South Jersey. I have fished, I want to say 99% of every body of water in the bottom part of that state I have fished. But for sure, some of my f- favorites, uh, I'll give you, let me see, I'll give you about five or six here. Uh, Assunpink Lake, uh, which is in central Jersey. Uh, Manasquan, which is in central, dropping down to southern New Jersey. Cooper River, Newton Creek, uh Dropping down a little further, I would tell you Union Lake, Rainbow Lake, Parvin Lake, uh, sprinkle Alloway in there, Shaw's Mill. Man, you've got a great selection of fisheries all within an hour drive of each other. So it's a great, it's a great place to go fishing. And he and he wanted to also know what what you what's your favorite pick for the best brewery in South Jersey? <laughs> oh, best brewery, man. We've we've got. I know we actually have a lot of good ones. Uh, we've got uh, like three or four within probably a 30 minute drive of my house. And that's, that's pretty, that's pretty dangerous, but Bonesaw Brewery in Glassboro, New Jersey, uh, phenomenal. And then uh, Death of a Fox Brewery uh, in Clarksboro, which is sort of near Swedesboro and Paulsboro, New Jersey. Uh, both two of my favorites love going there. They've got some great brews. They are really good at what they do. So give both of those a shot. Absolutely. Uh, Thomas Aligio said, what, what is your favorite go-to bait for a quick five limit and, and also your go-to bait for that big kicker fish? Yeah. Go-to for a a quick limit. I would have to say, I'd have to again, repeat a soft stick bait, but I'd also say a shaky head or a drop shot. I would throw in there, you know, uh, three finesse techniques that when you just want to get bites hard to beat for big fish, you know, I got to go old school here and say a skirted jig, you know, when I look back at fish four or five pounds or bigger, I've caught more of those on a skirted jig than any other lure or presentation. And that's from a foot of water swimming it over the surface to 40 foot down dragging a football jig, right? So a big range, a big spectrum. But a skirted jig, I think, presents a profile that mimics crawfish or bluegill or tilapia. And that's the kind of thing that big fish like to eat. It's a good, it's a big meal and uh, a lot of big ones on a skirted jig. Absolutely. Uh, so I left this one for the last because it's kind of a pretty cool question. So Kevin Tatro said, if you did walk away from fishing before you won the classic, where do you think that you would be today? Oh man, that's a great question. Yeah. You know, when I went into that tournament, I had actually submitted an application to go back to Rowan, to go back to Rowan University to get my teaching certificate. So I really, I really feel like if I didn't win the classic, if I didn't stay in the sport, I think I would have ended up a teacher. Uh, you know, I don't, I don't know if that means middle school, high school, grade school. I don't know what that meant, but, um, you know, I get to do it right now through the Bash University, but I love teaching. I love uh, interacting with people. So I'll be honest. I think I would ended up. Uh, I would end up being a teacher. I think I could see that break dancing <laughs> in the front of the classroom, and you would have oh, yeah. definitely kept some attention for sure. Oh yeah, 
hitting kids with rollers, you know, the whole nine. <laughs> <laughs> they might have actually learned something compared to nowadays. No. <laughs> I'll keep my mouth shut on that one. Yeah, I, I tried. <laughs> I couldn't do it. I couldn't do it. <laughs> oh man. Um, I I'm almost out of questions over here. I don't have any. Steven, do you have any questions for Mike? No, man. I've I've just been sitting back, loving and enjoying the whole story. Usually I chime in a lot more, but it's just been so unique. You know, usually when you get a fishing podcast, it's tips, techniques. It can kind of drag, but this one it even from being on the show has been entertaining from my seat. Right. So I've just been enjoying and uh, I, I just laugh awesome. and chuckle cause I'm the same way. I'm, I'm a stick bait guy uh, out here on the Shenandoah river. It's everything I do is either a stick bait or a soft minnow and yep. that's it. So yep. it's great. I, it's just, great technique. Well, I feel the same way. I'm glad you said that. Thanks for saying that. And I, I enjoy uh, being on podcasts. I enjoy talking about other stuff and it's, it's nice. It is refreshing to be able to talk about other stuff besides just techniques. And I love that too, but uh, it's, it's been great guys. I appreciate you inviting me on tonight. Absolutely, man. I, I mean, it's, it's crazy because your career has just, it, I've watched it unveil since I was a kid, always looking up, up to you and, and having your book and everything else and kind of just kind of watching you evolve through the years. It was actually really cool. I used to be really big into bass fishing and kind of went to the saltwater world. And I was like, I'm you know, trying to bring him back. I promise. <laughs> <laughs> I can't do it, man. I can't do it. <laughs> I grew up on a lake. He hasn't on the Connecticut river. It's he just, hasn't got to come yak the river with me yet. So oh, there, man. there's that always might, hope. That, that might pull you back. Yeah. I mean, I grew up, I'm, I live on a small lake in Connecticut and then I, you know, fished on the Connecticut river, which is a, an amazing fishery Candlewoods, maybe 45 minutes from me. So like we have really good fishery, Lake Champlain, all that stuff. We always fish it all the time, but, uh, bass fishing, I don't know. We catch really big bass now. So it's kind of, <laughs> kind of a toss up, right? Yeah. I, I like saltwater fishing too. So I, I, uh, I can't say anything. I be honest, you know, I look forward to, I, I only get, probably a dozen or less saltwater trips in a year. And when I eventually do get a saltwater trip in, I look forward to it because it, it is a good change of pace. And I really think that, you know, you can learn from both, right? I can take things from saltwater and, and use them in fresh. I could take things from fresh and use them in salt. And I, you know, at the end of the day, it's the same game, right? It's a, it's a puzzle. It's a Rubik's cube. It's uh, it's that challenge of figuring the puzzle out, fighting and landing the fish. So salt, fresh, Fly rod, spinny rod, baitcaster, it doesn't matter. Doesn't just fishing. Fishing's fishing. That's right. Hey, Mike, we do have one last question, man. And since you're on the outdoor drive, the question is what drives you outdoors, my friend, Mike? Uh, driving me outdoors, uh, I would say just the love of fishing, the love of being out there and, you know, keeping, uh, keeping kids fishing. Uh, this whole interview, that we did lasted, I guess, almost an hour. I've had one of my kids right here in the passenger seat. That's Riley. That's my daughter, Riley. Hey, Riley. <laughs> Hi, Riley. She's not, she's not a kid anymore, but, you know, when I look back on the experiences we had, she loves the outdoors. She loves being outside. She's doesn't aspire to be a professional angler, but she loves fishing. So, you know, that keeps me going to have an impact on people like that. And uh, I hope I get to do this uh, at, hopefully for the rest of my life. Outstanding. Well, you can't really say it much better than that. You've literally made a career out of doing something we wish we could go do every day. Well, Trev is excluded because he does, but uh, the everyday Joe only wishes they could fish every day and do it and make a living on it. Uh, so it, it's pretty cool. It, it's real unique. And to see you just go out there to dig through what you did to get there really just kind of set you apart. You know, it was natural. You fought tooth and nail to get to where you are. So just want to congratulate awesome. you on the career. It's been wonderful. Thank you. Thank you. I appreciate that. It means a lot. Thank you. Well, before we cut you off of here, where can everybody find you? How can everybody find all the uh, the different things you got going on? Yeah, for sure. Uh, it, all my social sites at Mike Iconelli, uh, uh, my Facebook page at Mike Iconelli Fishing, and of course my website, uh, MikeIconelli.com. A lot of great information there. And then, you know, the two we talked about, thebashuniversity.com. 
you can go there and check out some of the education stuff. And last but not least, if you want to help get kids fishing, go to theikefoundation.org. Lots of ways to help. Please go over there and, and help get kids fishing. Outstanding. We greatly appreciate that. And uh, the warm season's coming, guys, so if you haven't been out on the water, I highly recommend you get in, check out some of his information, and go put it to work right out there on whatever your local body of water is. And until then, we want to thank you for taking the ride right here on the Outdoor Drive.